As we continue to move our way through this narrative, we have just saw last week the death of John the Baptist. And we see in part the disciples and Jesus Christ reacting to that death in our text today. So if you'll please stand with me. We're going to read from verses 13 through 21 today. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible Word for His church today. Now when Jesus heard this, that is, John the Baptist's death, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed Him on foot from the towns. And when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to Him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women. And children, please pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, as I, as I pray often, I pray today with this wonderful passage in mind. Um, certainly, God, the, the words that you have laid upon my heart this, this week are insufficient to do any good to anybody ever. But God, through your Spirit, through Jesus Christ and His compassion toward us sitting in this room today, we pray that you would take... Um, you take these words, so you break them, you multiply them, and that you would multiply your word and, and cause it to bear fruit to us today. Lord, I pray you fill me with your spirit. Help me, God, not to go beyond what is written. Help me, God, not to, not to be boastful or to preach myself, but preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified today. I pray that you would help us all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Introductions are always the most difficult and therefore usually the last thing that ever comes into my mind with a sermon. And often I'm, I'm praying about it the morning of, and the thing that stands forth in my mind most clearly today is that I think that we all gathered here together today, conservative Christians believe that our worldview, how God created the world, how the world works, must be informed first and foremost always by the Word of God. We are so inclined in our own sin and our own sinful thinking to make up and rationalize different things. But I fear that often we can really struggle to believe a creation narrative, a six days of creation narrative as a biblical worldview and forget some of the more practical aspects of believing saving faith that the Bible talks about. We've talked many times about belief in spiritual warfare, that there is a true devil and true demons, and that we must live accordingly. And today, I hope that we will start to see in this text and the one following that Jesus Christ demands of us to have a biblical worldview that is based on faith, that God works through our obedience to work things in this world in this week's passage. And also, next week, that we have to work to increase our faith in living for and through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus, in our text today, gives us a personal example of how we are to behave in this world. And then He, he shows His disciples how He is with them always to do even the work of ministry. So, the central idea of this text is certainly focused on Jesus Christ Himself. His compassion. That is, in a time of personal trial, Jesus Christ compassionately feeds the multitudes, I didn't mean to use alliteration here, but I did, by miraculously multiplying bread and fish. Okay? That's a central idea. But the purpose of our text is that we would look and that we would marvel at the compassion that Jesus Christ has towards sinners first. Then we ought to notice the command to His people to be compassionate. And thirdly, that there is a necessary faith for us to act compassionately like our Savior in this world. So, let's look at that in order. In verses 13-14, through 14, notice the compassion of Jesus Christ. Now, I think that if you were to come into my house on a really good day, for me personally, and you'd see my wife there and she's making dinner, I'm coming home from work, and I go in and give my, my wife a kiss and my youngest daughter a kiss and my oldest daughter a kiss, you might say, this man truly, really loves his family. He has compassion for them. But unfortunately, that's usually because I've had a good day that I'm compassionate, Right? That we tend to act most compassionately and best to the people whom we love who, who work good for us. But Jesus Christ shows the opposite of that in this text. That is, in a time of personal trial, Jesus Christ shows the greatest display of compassion, maybe short of the cross, in this text. Now, love, my point being, is best known when somebody shows it when they're in a hard providence. Now, you might look at that same thing, and if I came home and I had a terrible day at the office, um, I spilled water all over the floor of the sanctuary, which really happened yesterday, and it wasn't pretty, okay? Those kind of things, and you come into my house, my wife didn't make dinner, my kids are yelling and screaming, she yells at me first thing I come in the door, and then I show compassion, then you might truly say, that's truly a compassionate man. Now, Jesus has past hardships in the context of this passage that show He's in a time of trial. We see that He heard this in verse 13. He heard about the death of John the Baptist. Now, this would have certainly affected Jesus Christ's heart. John the Baptist was not only a close friend of Christ in the ministry, he was a godly prophet that Jesus Christ highly exalted in Matthew chapter 11, calling him the best born among women. But more than that, Jesus Christ connected with the death of John the Baptist knows that Herod the king is on the prowl persecuting those who follow John the Baptist. And we see this throughout Matthew. That when persecution arises... Jesus typically doesn't just dig in His heels in the place where He is, but He goes to another place to preach the Gospel. He even commands His disciples in chapter 10 to do the same thing. If persecution arises, if they reject My Word, dust off the, the dust from your feet and go to another place and preach the Gospel. So we have those hardships. But also, we have the hardship of a very busy time in the personal ministry of Jesus Christ and His disciples. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Now, again, hard labor. 
can certainly be a time of personal trial for all of us. And I believe that's how Jesus Christ took this personal, this personal time. Now notice, this is the exact same place in history that we're talking about in Matthew. <clears throat> notice verses 30 and 31. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Notice this. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now many of you may have worked in the restaurant industry or a busy industry like that where you're so busy you don't even have time to sit down and prepare a meal. That's the kind of busyness that Jesus Christ's ministry had at this time. And so as we think about the past hardships of Jesus Christ, this is why He goes into a desolate place and why He brings His disciples that they might have some rest. might get away from it for a period of time to recalibrate themselves so that they could continue in ministry. But there's also a present hardship. When Jesus Christ gets to the desolate place, what does He see? Stepping out. He sees crowds, multitudes there. Jesus had left with His disciples to escape the crowds in part. To escape, to have a time of rest and rejuvenation. And the first thing He sees when He exits this boat is a crowd of people lying there. Now, it might be one thing to think, well, these are godly Christians. They're just hungry Christians looking to be fed from Jesus Christ. But that is not what these people were. Now, our text doesn't explicitly say that, but I'm going to have you turn to another parallel passage in John chapter 6. <clears throat> John chapter 6. <coughs> Excuse me. In verses 1 through 13, we see very clearly that this is the exact same event that we're reading about in Matthew. That they had gone away in a boat and Jesus finds these crowds gathered together. Now, notice how Jesus describes these crowds in verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him the Father has set His seal. And as we read through the rest of that chapter, it becomes very apparent that these people are not believers. They are merely going and seeking after Jesus Christ because He's able to fill them with bread, to give them um, financial prosperity, we might say. Now the question is, with Jesus Christ having these hardships in His mind, He's going to escape a very busy season of ministry for a time. He's going to escape persecution and the death of a beloved friend. And then He opens the doors to His vacation and He sees a crowd of unbelieving people that merely are there so that they can be fed bread. How would you respond to that? I know how I would respond. It'd be much like the water spilling on the floor yesterday. But... Jesus responds with compassion, doesn't He? Now, knee-jerk reactions are very revealing, and I've brought up the water on the floor more than it's appropriate, probably. But when I, I was trying to empty the baptismal yesterday, and I had a mop, and I was putting in the bucket, and as soon as it was full, and I was done to go home for the day, I went to wheel that mop bucket, and I spilled it all over the floor, and you could probably see some of the white mineral deposits on the carpet still. My knee-jerk reaction 
was not to be compassionate to the man who made that easily overturned mop bucket. Okay? It was the opposite of that. But that reveals something about my heart. I had to sit in the back row and repent to the Lord for my, my anger coming out of me in that moment. Now, to unbelieving and selfish people, Jesus Christ has compassion in this text. And the, the word, the Greek word, which I won't repeat to you because I would just make a fool out of myself most likely, tells us that he was moved in his very being. Right? The King James describes this word as bowels of compassion sometimes. He was not a cold intellectual response. Jesus didn't say to himself when he opened that door and saw the crowds, I know it's my duty and I have to go about and feed these crowds. Rather, he was moved with compassion and love for these people. He was moved for them. Now, we as sinful people, we think that we, can ha- we do often have compassion on those who we consider to be deserving or suffering in some way. But to those who aren't deserving in our minds, we're not compassionate. I remember shooting a bird when I was a small child with a BB gun, and I remember the bird flopping on the ground and going over to it and feeling so bad I had to call my dog over to it because I knew my dog would finish the job. I had compassion on that bird because I felt in my heart that it was an innocent being that I had unjustly hurt. But our Savior is moved with compassion, not towards those who are deserving, but those who are undeserving. Those whom He knows in His heart are going to even reject His Gospel and His truth. Now, this display of Jesus Christ's passion, His compassion rather, is a reflection of the compassion that we have in our God. And I would say to you today, when we read about the compassion of Jesus Christ, what we're seeing is the preeminent display of God's holiness put before us. Now, if we've been in reformed circles for very long, we know that holiness means what? Otherness. Right? It means that He's wholly different from us. And often in our minds, we think of holiness, we think that He's far away from us. And that we can't reach Him. But I would tell you that in the Scriptures, holiness is just as much seen in how far away He can be from us as how close He comes to us in the Gospel. His compassion reveals the greatest display of His otherness. And we saw that, and I hope you noticed it, in Isaiah chapter 55. I'll read for you. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Notice what is said in verses 6-9. through In verses 6 and 7, it's saying, Come and seek the Lord while He may be found. Repent and come to Christ. And notice what it says, For He will abundantly pardon. If any sinner sees his sin and repents and comes to Christ for salvation and pardon, we have a promise here that He pardons every soul that does that. But the reason given for it is because He is holy. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We see the holiness of God put on display in the greatest way possible in this feeding of the 5,000. He has compassion on those who don't deserve it. And He shows Himself to be completely different than us. And this is the foundation of all of our salvation and all of our hope. That in eternity past, God looked and He saw His people and He was moved with compassion in their sins. 
that Jesus Christ Himself, He gave Himself, not for those deserving, but for His enemies, for those who hated Him, those who crucified Him. He gave His very life for those people. God is compassionate to sinners. And Jesus Christ shows Himself to be the image of the invisible God in this passage by being good to sinners. And I want us to notice that the passage doesn't stop there, but it has a peculiar emphasis on the disciples and what they're supposed to do. That is, as Christians, we are not merely to marvel at the compassion of God, which we're supposed to do, but we're commanded to go out and do the same. And that brings us to the second point, the command that we have to be compassionate. Notice with me, if you're in Matthew chapter 14 still, what's said here. Now, when it was evening, and keep in mind why the apostles are even with Christ at this point. When it was evening, the disciples came to Him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said, we have only five loaves here and two little fish. The command... To be compassionate comes in the context in the disciples' mind that they have depleted resources. They don't have enough resources, fish, bread, in order to feed all of these people. And if you read in other Gospels, they don't have enough money. They don't have enough denarii to feed all these people. Now, thinking of some of you, and I won't point out any, I know that some of you had come to Reformed theology, and especially soteriologically in Calvinism, through reading through Romans chapter 9 and how Paul puts together a really tight argument about God's sovereignty over salvation, right? Paul continued for a while and you say in your mind, yeah, but what about this? And Paul brings it up and he answers your question. He puts together a tight argument in order that those who might be otherwise minded don't have anywhere to go. There's only one logical conclusion that can be reached from all of this argument and data being put together And I think that's what the disciples are doing in this text to our Savior. They're trying to put together a strong argument. You need to send these people away, right? I mean, think of it. Look what they're arguing for. It's evening, right? We came here to be alone, and we've ministered all day. It's evening now. We've done enough. Send the crowds away. On top of that, we came here expressly for the purpose to rest. Notice he says, we are here in a desert place. Christ said, come away with me into a desert place to rest for a while, didn't he? We're here. This is the purpose we came. Therefore, send the crowds away. Additionally, we have no food to feed these people. And when Christ says, you feed them, he says, well, we have two lo- or 12 loaves and two little fish. You know these, these loaves? They're probably about the size of a, I don't even know, a rice cake, something like that, Right? And if you think about 13 men traveling into the wilderness to spend some time, they don't have enough food for themselves to last this time, right? We barely have enough food for ourselves, Jesus. Just send the crowds away. It's better for everybody that you do this, right? But the question I would ask you is, does that kind of reasoning sound familiar to you in your personal experience? I know it does to me. When the Lord lays it upon my heart to love somebody, to give somebody money, to to do anything 
that requires love and self-sacrifice. How often I come up with arguments in my own head to battle against the Holy Spirit. I don't have enough time. I don't have the emotional reserves to be able to do that today. You call me to write that brother or sister? I don't know. I've just had a long day to do it. We argue with the Lord often that we don't have the resources to be able to accomplish the love that He has commanded us to do. Now, the thing that really stands out here is that Jesus commands us to love despite our resources in this text. Now, I I called Brother Joey for the purpose of praying for me because one of the things that I really try, I do not want to lay a burden that the Bible doesn't lay upon Christians. I don't want to make the righteous, the wicked, glad in preaching. But the Bible demands us to love one another. And if you search the Scriptures cover to cover, it never tells us, okay, examine everything that you have, all of your resources, and then you can obey me if you find that you have enough. It's just not the case. I would tell you that the Gospel of Jesus Christ demands for us to love one another and to be compassionate. Jesus Christ, He gave all for us. And His 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that He was rich and for our sake became poor that we might become rich. He died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves but for Him who was crucified and then was raised again. And I tell you today, the ultimate show of our love and thankfulness to Jesus Christ is to love one another. Isn't this what Jesus' point was in John chapter 21? After His resurrection from the dead, and He gathers together His disciples, and He's talking to Peter? What does He say to Peter in verse 15? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The Gospel demands us, if we see the love that Jesus Christ has shown to sinners in dying and pouring out His blood for us, we're commanded. The only proper response is to love the people that Jesus loves so much. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Therefore, my beloved brothers, in verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, I'm very cautious and I'm careful. I do not want to lay a burden on us that is too heavy for us to bear. But I'd ask you today, do you argue often with the Bible and with the Spirit of things you know you're supposed to be doing to love one another Do you argue with that? You don't have the resources or the time. I'd say that's a common thing that we do, and that's why this text is given. But I want us to notice that Jesus does not leave us on our own. It's not as if He gives these commands and expects us to work in our own power and our own ways. But there must be, thirdly, a necessary faith in our... Notice in verses 18-21 through of our text. Then He ordered the crowds... 
18, he said to them, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass and taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave to the disciples. The disciples gave to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who were eight were about 5,000 men besides, notice, women and children. Just as a side note. The necessary faith that we have in our compassion. Notice that first, Jesus must be trusted in our obedience. Certainly, if these disciples were commanded to take those 12 loaves and those two fish or five fish and feed these men and women and children, certainly nobody would have had enough to eat, right? They'd all have a little scale from a fish and a little flake of barley, perhaps, to put in their mouths. But they're called to trust Jesus Christ. He says, bring what you have, your resources, to me. And I want us to notice the strong picture here. We give Jesus our meager resources that are not sufficient, and He multiplies them. He is not like Pharaoh that sends the people of Israel out to make bricks without straw. Rather, Jesus Christ empowers us to do what we alone cannot do. And it's one of the greatest displays of grace in the New Covenant that the Spirit of God empowers us to do the work of ministry. I mean, we believe that, don't we? That it's not on our own efforts. It's not on our own abilities. But it is only Christ ever working through His people that the work of ministry is ever accomplished. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 4. And we could go to innumerable places in the Scripture to show this. We are commanded, my purpose in stating here today, we are commanded to love not of our own efforts, but trusting that Christ uses our efforts to make them effectual. That we are to trust Christ in our obedience. Notice 1 Peter 4. In verse, uh, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And notice this language as good stewards of God's varied grace. That is, it is not your labor that's at work here. It's God's grace working in you. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is, in all of our service, we're not to look first to our own resources, but we go out to serve one another, trusting that God supplies the energy and the resources that we need to work. And this is the constant habit of the Christian. We look at the command to Christ to love our neighbor, and when we look internally, I say, I have no ability to do that. I say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, I'm insufficient in and of myself to be able to do the ministry of the Gospel. When we notice the insufficiency, but we don't give up. We give it to Jesus Christ, trusting that He will work through our meager efforts to do His will. Secondly, not only should Jesus be trusted in our acts of obedience, we should notice that that Jesus gives strength to act in the moment of our obedience. 
Again, to repeat myself, God nowhere tells us to look at our own ability in order to fulfill His commands. (coughs) Rather, we are shown throughout the Scripture, aren't we, that God is weak men, fallible men, men that can't accomplish anything in order to show His own power through them. We think of Gideon, don't we? That Gideon goes out and he chooses 32,000 men to go to battle. And God whittles them down to 300. And the purpose was that the Lord said to Gideon in Judges 7-2, the people with you are too many for me Gideonites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Often, God chooses us because we don't have the resources that are sufficient in and of our flesh. Because He chooses to make His name great through weak vessels. Jesus Christ shows us, I think, abundantly clear as well when He tells the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And in the moment of His obedience, His hand was made full. Matthew Henry says, as the widow's oil that Brother Joey read for us this morning, as the widow's oil increased while she was pouring it out, so here the bread and the breaking. Thus grace grows by being acted. And while other things perish with the using, spiritual gifts increase with the using. Right? God often gives us, he gives us the resources we need and the sufficiency we need in the act of our obedience, not beforehand. Just as James chapter 1, verse 25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That is, in the act of doing God's will, we are often blessed with the power to be able to bring it to pass. So, we not only bring faith by trusting Christ with our obedience, knowing that Christ gives us the strength in the moment of our obedient action, but also that Jesus Christ brings fruit and increase often far above all that we can ask or think. We see in our text that an absolute overabundance was produced. Um, me, and, me and Erica sometimes like to watch a show called Alone, which is you know, people being dropped off into usually like the Alaskan or northern Canadian wilderness to survive, right? And they have to count their calories in order to do that. And if they can only make it a certain, if they can dividend their fish that they've caught, so to speak, up so that they have a sufficient amount of calories just to survive the amount of time allotted, then they win the prize. But Jesus here, he doesn't give them enough food just so that they can barely make it home with enough energy to take care of their family before they go to bed. He supplies them with complete abundance here. Notice with me that in Matthew chapter 14, it says that they all ate and were satisfied. The women, the children, and the men, perhaps 10,000 people in total, they were satisfied by what they ate. Now, reading about the culture at the time, it's possible that these people never ate a meal in their life where they left and were completely satisfied and full from what they ate. It was a rarity for them to have enough that they felt full and satisfied. But Jesus Christ overabundantly provides for those people. I ask you, how many times has the Word of God done that in your own life? Hearing a sermon, a preaching ministry, reading the Scripture, and God provides overabundantly all that you could ask or think. He provides answers you didn't know you were looking for. 
He loves us and He does provide for us. And we must trust that Jesus Christ brings the increase. But not just to the people they were ministering to. Notice the apostles themselves. They gathered up 12 baskets of food that the minister of the Gospel, you, going and ministering to people you don't think you have the resources, I think in this text we have a wonderful picture that God not only provides for fruit to come with the people we're ministering to, He provides for us. He provides for us. And I don't know how many times, and I think all you who have preached know this, how often in the act of preaching you realize you're preaching to yourself while you're giving the message as well. Now, this alludes to many passages in Scripture that, that promise abundance to those who minister and who love others. Now, this is not health and wealth prosperity. We're not saying that God, if you give of your money, as is most frequently mentioned, if you give of your money, you're going to have enough to, to buy a Ferrari next week. If you just send in your $12,000 now, you're going to have $120,000 next month come in. That's not what the Scripture promises, but we have to notice that the Scripture does promise blessing and increase from those who serve. I, I'd like us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> and again, as you're turning there, what we're looking at is that Jesus is the one who multiplies these things. We have faith in Him that He gives us the strength to act and even that He brings the increase. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe that this will work to correct a whole host of errors in the wealth and health prosperity movement if we would just pay attention to the words that are spoken here. Notice in verse 6, strong language. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So notice that. God causes us to increase in our supply, but it's for a particular purpose and end, isn't it? That we might abound in every good work. We continue. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of what? Your bank account? Your righteousness. God, in the act of our ministry, and I am not confining this to money in any way, shape, or form, when we give of ourselves, God helps to increase that so that we might we might continue to love others in the way that we're called to do and that we might even abound in that. Notice, lastly, not only do we increase in our righteousness that we might abound in every good work, in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is another fruit that's produced of us giving willingly of ourselves that God has thankfulness. The people grow in their thankfulness when you, when you give of yourself to love others. And so today, I want us to marvel at the gospel of Jesus Christ. That He gave of Himself. <clears throat> he died for us. And in this text, 
He gave of Himself under hard circumstances, and He commands His disciples to do the same. We are not to look at our own resources, our own ability, our own emotional state and say, I can or cannot do this, but God, give me the grace to do it. Give me the grace to obey you. I would ask you today to examine your excuses for not loving your neighbor. What particular thing has been laid upon your heart this week? And I trust that there are some things that you ought to be doing, but you're making excuses. You're arguing with Christ about not doing it because of your own lack of resources. If you have no compassion today, and you're just honest with yourself, I don't look upon my spouse, my, my children, my church, the unbelievers around me, I don't look upon them with compassion I would say look to Jesus Christ. See the compassion that He had to you while you were an enemy. While you hated Him. Focus on that and and grow in compassion. But we are not to wait until we feel compassion to do something for our neighbor. Rather, do what you're commanded to do and repent to God for your lack of feeling in it. Do you not have enough resources? Trust His compassionate eye toward you and toward the people that you're trying to minister to. Christ is more compassionate than we will ever be. And He commands us to love. He will give us the grace to do it. He'll give us the grace to do it. And we have a a much greater picture of His compassion in the Lord's Supper than we do Him feeding the 5,000. Instead of multiplying the bread to physically feed people, we have in the Lord's Supper that He laid down His body so that He would spiritually take care of and nourish all of God's people to the end of time. And it's very fascinating. Uh, when you look at this text and all of the texts that talk about Jesus multiplying bread, it has the same kind of verbs used in the Lord's Supper. He took, He broke, He blessed, He gave. That's what we see here today. The greatest miracle is that Jesus Christ provided sufficiently atonement for all of His people for all time. 1 Corinthians 11.26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes.